Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Bridge Radio. And we are coming at you from the great state of Texas. Texas. I am your host, A.W. Varilla, And in front of me is one, the one and only Julio Rodriguez. All right. And I'm back for an episode. He's back. (laughs) And like always, the president of this book factory, Steve the Boston Hartog. What's up, everybody? Oh, there it is. And we're back. Nice. Feeling so smooth. <laughs> Reunited and we didn't, we didn't even know the song. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah, Julio is in town and he is uh, visiting us. And Julio, what have you been up to, bro? Talk I've been, to us. I've been in Houston. Uh, maybe I could come on a podcast one day and explain all the chaos that had happened after i moved up that would be a, that yeah that would that's be what happens when you leave bridge yeah <laughs> so yeah um no longer working at the uh, uh supreme Weldon academy but we can save that one for another day but yeah. as of right now i am uh starting up an agency by the name of sola media yes so we are trying to help out uh christian churches yeah. ministries and um trying to uh uh, advance the gospel through uh, through the internet, yeah. a place where there's billions and billions of people and users, and trying just to uh, really, really try to use um, you know just content creation to advance the gospel, much like what Bridge does here, very well, and very who well. we very are well. working with, yes. for yes. our social media and website design and so forth. So mm-hmm. we're excited about that. Yeah, me so too. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're par- partnering up with Solo Media, so we're super excited for that. And your new uh, adventures and uh, uh, business opportunities that mm-hmm. you're, you're 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 doing. So yeah, uh, it's good to have you back. And thank you everybody for tuning in. And today we have a first time guest, Dr. Michael T. Cooper, on his book Ephesiology: A Study of the Ephesian Movement by uh, William uh, Carey Publishing. So we're super excited to have uh, Dr. Cooper. Um, again, uh, Dr. Cooper in his book Ephesiology. Uh, it is a book of just church planning and just movement and all that good stuff. And hopefully we can get um, uh, uh, information on this because it was just really good reading the book um, and how the movement of the church in Ephesus just looked in uh, church planning and everything. So just super excited to have him on. Mm. Uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, please uh, subscribe to Apple, Android, Google, and Stitcher Radio. And please visit our website at bridgeminlaredo.org. So, uh, gentlemen, are you guys ready to get this uh, podcast started? I'm ready. Dr. Michael T. Cooper is an executive in a mission organization where he leads a team focused on training and empower local believers and church leaders in evangelism, discipleship, and leadership. Welcome, Dr. Michael Cooper, to Bridge Radio for the first time. Well, thank you. Thanks. I, this is exciting. I'm uh, glad to be with you all. Oh, well, we're excited to have you on. Um, we got your information from Dr. Uh, Steve Lesson, who mm-hmm. uh, Love that guy. yeah, <laughs> and uh, he's a yeah. he's a local Chicago guy as well, and uh, and and he's and been this on is like the Chicago connection. That, it is, is like the Chica- it's, it's a it's a Chi Town podcast. <laughs> yeah, the Chi Town podcast. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 
Uh, he's been on he's been on Bridge Radio on his book, uh, The Bible and World History. I believe it's like episode fifty something. Yeah. Uh, so we're looking to get him back, but he's like super busy. So he threw your name out there, and we're like, bring him on. Uh, we've been enjoying. <laughs> <laughs> we've been really enjoying your book. And um, just for our listeners, uh, Michael, can you just please share a, a little bit about yourself and how God drew you to Saving Faith? Yeah, you know what? Interestingly enough, it was in Texas, of all places. Oh, um, yeah. My family, moved to, yeah. my family moved to Texas in the 1970s, I guess it was. Okay. And uh, when, I, when I was a senior in high school in Houston, Texas, uh, the, the, the uh, young lady that I had a crush on invited me to a student event and it was there that I heard the gospel for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, you know what, it was something that I was looking for. Um, I had not really understood anything about unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And the speaker was talking about uh, a love that was just so compelling that it just made sense to me. And, um, after that meeting, uh, a, uh, t- at the time, it wasn't called Student Venture at the time, but Cruz High School Ministry. Uh, one of their staff uh, contacted me and wanted to meet. And uh, mm. so I said, yeah, I'd like to hear more about what this faith journey is about. And so I can remember it was October 30th, 1980, sitting in a Mighty Burger restaurant in Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. And I gave my life to the Lord. And so, And it's been a journey, uh, of course, ever since then. Uh, but, but, uh, yeah. Um, and it, and a tremendous change in my life. Uh, it was just so appreciative of Mike Crandall, uh, who was the guy that shared the gospel with me. Wow. Yeah. That, that's pretty amazing. Now you said that, uh, uh, you moved to Texas and I'm, I'm sorry, was it a lady that you went down there? I'm, I was trying to remember. Yeah. So in high school, I had a crush on on a girl. Okay. Mm. And I did. Yeah, I know. How many guys do that? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. they. I, many. I moved, many. Yeah, many. <laughs> I mean, I moved down yeah, here to so, Texas from yeah. Chicago for yeah, a and lady. Then, and there might, I, mean, I might be going to California. Well, now, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I didn't move for her. I didn't move to Texas uh, because I had a crush on this particular, okay. <laughs> particular so person. Funny. But, uh, no, my family had moved down during the oil boom. And, mm. uh, and then when I was in high school, I met Angie. Angie and I are still friends. Okay. Uh, I met Angie and had a crush on her. And and uh, just so thankful that the Lord used her in my life to mm. invite me to a, a student event. And, yeah, we, you know, we, we never did date. Uh mm. But uh, uh, really appreciate, you know, the courage of a high school young lady who would invite uh, someone to a Christian meeting mm. uh, when she knew the gospel was going to be shared. So, yeah. so yeah, so I'm was, very, very grateful for her. It, it was a little uh, like flirt to convert. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. <Yeah. laughs> That's a joke. That's a well, joke, you know guys. What that, yeah. I, I honestly, I had no idea what this meeting was about, but I did know that on our particular high school campus, that this club, it was a student club, was a very popular club. Uh-huh. And I thought, boy, I've been invited by this this uh, cute young uh, lady to a, to uh, one of the most popular on our high school campus. And I thought, uh-huh. wow, this is really going to be cool. Uh but uh, yeah, so as it turned out, um, I, I learned a lot more about, not just about you know, the topic was on relationships, dating relationships among high schoolers. But, uh, 
and about love. Yeah. And, uh, and I learned there uh, about this love that Christ has for mm. us. Uh, it was just, uh, just amazing. Amen. Amen. Yeah, the unconditional love found in Scripture is, is very powerful. I remember the first time uh, I kind of heard the unconditional love of God, and it was just somebody expounding on that text in Romans that said, um, you know, even though we were sinners, he died for us, and pointing that as like, that's how you know that God unconditionally loves you. Uh, you can only show unconditional love when, you know, you're, you're, you continue to show love when certain conditions are not met, and that text is just so powerful that talks about the unconditional love of God. But, um, um, okay. Yeah. So your book, Ephesiology, interesting name. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great name. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. It is a good, now, uh, are, are you planning on having like a, like Titusology or like Revelationology <laughs> or Markology? Like, are, are you planning on, on, a, on doing like a series? I just want to know. Just question. Just question. <laughs> yeah. You know what? That's a good idea. Why not? Why not? You've taken it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so this, yeah. this, this book was, um, what 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 I believe to be twenty five years in the making. So what 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 inspired yeah. you to do a physiology? Well, you know, I've always been fascinated with church messages. Missionary days. Um, I uh, after I finished university, I actually went to Texas A and M. Uh, after I finished university, in Europe and worked with crew. Uh, about, you know, at the time of the fall of communism, I moved into Romania to do church planting. And uh, you want to study when you're doing church planting is, I think, the church in Ephesus. And so my heart and love for that church started to grow uh, back in the early 1990s and just became fascinated with it. You know, I uh, even at the time can remember thinking, gosh, we just have so much information about this church. In, in the New Testament. You know, there's not only the beautiful chapter of Acts, uh, it's, well, actually starting in Acts 18, 18, all the way through Acts 19, about the start of that movement, but the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians and then First and Second Timothy, and, and then, of course, the letter that Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Mm-hmm. And I thought, um, if I need to pay attention to a church and learn about what a church is, that that church in Ephesus would be a good one to study. Yeah. And so I began to to uh, dig into it uh, way back then. Um, but really, it, it, it's probably been within the last couple of years that the, the full impact of what that church became really sat in uh, with me as I continued to, to study it. I can remember, you know, going through seminary and learning, uh, you know, from my professors that the book, the study, if you want to learn about the church's Ephesians, and mm-hmm. if you want to learn leadership, then you want to study First Timothy, uh, and Titus as well, but First Timothy, yeah. of course, written to Timothy when he's in Ephesus. And so, yeah, I can remember uh, after seminary that those would, those uh, Ephesians and First Timothy were the next couple books that I translated from Greek into English, and mm-hmm. ultimately I used that for my re- Romanian preaching mm. uh, when I lived in Romania. And uh, yeah, so just had that love for that church in Ephesus. How so? How long were you in? Romania and and, in Europe, because I know just reading through your book, Michael, uh, that you spend a lot of time there and just uh, 
learning a lot there. Can you just uh, let our audience know just the time that you spend over there? Yeah, sure. We Well, I actually moved to Europe in the late 1980s uh, before the fall of communism when I was on staff with crew. And then in 90, uh, moved into the country of Romania where I lived for 10 years and uh, was a part of starting uh, seven church planting streams. We would talk about them today across the southern part of that country and began to see multiplication occurring, of course, with disciples, but also uh, among churches. And uh, a couple of our churches multiplied and plant other churches. So it was an exciting time, uh, you know, to be in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union uh, in 1990. And in uh, 2000, we came back to the States. Um, I, I say we because my wife and I, we met as college students, but uh, she came to Romania and we were on the same team and we were married in 93. Uh, but uh, we came back to the States in 2000 and um, that's when I did my uh, doctoral work and eventually went on the faculty at Trinity and uh, International University up in Deerfield and taught there for 10 years. Now, uh, I've always had a heart for missions, though, mm-hmm. and, and so um, two years ago, stepped out of Trinity and uh, back into the mission world. Yeah, wow, that's uh, I I know that uh, uh, Trinity uh, is a very very good uh, very good school. Uh, we had um, uh, Dr. D. A. Carson on for our hundred episode, and and he's teaching over there. I think uh, uh, at Trinity uh, uh, still, I believe. Uh, I don't know. I'm yeah. trying to remember. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, just a great school. Uh, Michael, uh, yeah. what are the distinctions between biblical theology and missiological theology? Uh, and you, you talk a lot of, a little bit about your book, just those different uh, distinctions. Yeah. When I talk about missiological theology, what I have in mind is trying to get the big picture of mm. what the Bible is about. Now, now, biblical theology can get us there. So biblical theology tends to focus on specific books of the Bible and, and really understanding the themes, the context, you know, what was the authorial intent uh, of a particular book. But missiological theology looks at the whole picture, mm. uh, and particularly the, the whole picture of what God is doing in the world. Mm. And um, and so that, that would be the main distinction there. And, and what I love about this idea of missiological theology is that it situates each of the books of the Bible in this grand story of God being on mission. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, I believe, and I'm, I'm sure many would agree, that God is a missionary God. Uh, from the time of Genesis to Revelation, he has been about engaging people in this relentless pursuit of a relationship with him. Um, and, and, and if that's who God is, and I believe he is, then we should see that, uh, that throughout the Bible yeah. in its grand narrative, but we should see it also in every book of the Bible. Mm. But this is who God is. This is what he's about. Um, and, and, uh, and the neat thing about that is uh, that translates over to us, that if God is a God who is in pursuit of these relationships with people, then as his co-laborers, we join with him in pursuing those people so that they can have a relationship with him. And so that's, 
you know, that's kind of the big picture of the theological theology. And then there are some nuances to it in terms of, you know, how do we actually get to a place to say, this is our missiological theology? Yeah, no, I really like how you, in, in the first chapter, you were just making those distinction, which was really important for me to understand uh, that perspective. I was like, oh, well, there is a difference here. And that was just really good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. And, go ahead. Yeah, well, no, I was just going to say, I think there's, you know, there's, uh, there is a distinction between missiological theology and biblical theology, but mm. there's more of a distinction between missiological theology and systematic theology. Mm, yeah. Um, because if we, if we think about biblical theology in terms of, you know, telling the story of a particular book, missiological theology is telling the, story, the grand story of sure. what God's doing in the world, whereas systematic theology divides up that story into different topics. Okay. And, um, and, and what I've seen, at least in my study of the systematics, is that uh, when we do that, when we divide up the Bible into different topics, we can tend to lose the, the missional, the missiological purpose of uh, the Bible. And uh, because then, you know, missiology, the study of missions, becomes one of the systems of our theology alongside of, you know, bibliology, theology proper, theological anthropology, pneumatology, soteriology, and so on. I mean, our Lord and Savior, you know, as he's ascending, you know, he told us to go out to the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that that's very crucial. Uh, Missions are, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's central uh, yeah. to who we are yeah. as uh, as followers of Christ. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I I love church history. I love studying church history. I think it's uh, it, it's good to look back two thousand years uh, to all the giants who you know we stand on their shoulders and see what they have done and believing mm-hmm. that Christ has started to move the church forward mm-hmm. um you know that that our history didn't end uh you know with the with the book of revelation or the you know the book of, of Jude but it's it's still con- continuing it's still it's still unfolding and so um um i i, I would like to to get your answer or your comment on on this but why why do you believe the movement that began in Ephesus is the most significant in church history yeah oh. Uh, and this comes out of some of my studies. So you remember, that, you know, I became fascinated with the church in Ephesus early on in my missions career. Mm-hmm. And as I continued to study it, and particularly over the last couple of years, I began to see that, you know, not only is Acts 18, 18, and 19 connected to Ephesus, and Paul letters to the Ephesians connected to the church, and First and Second Timothy and Revelation connected to the church, but a, a significant uh, minority of the New Testament is connected to that church in Ephesus. Okay. Uh, so let me, let me explain. Um, and so, you know, we have, for example, the Gospel of John. Uh, John moved to Ephesus, I think, probably prior to the Jewish wars. And there's some you know, complexities in thinking through what that means, but, but we know from church history that John does want to have been and it's from Ephesus that he pens the gospel of John. And uh, one of the neat things about that gospel is how connected it is to the different cultural issues 
that uh, the Christians were confronting in the city of Ephesus and in, in the Roman province of Asia. So you have John uh, that's connected to Ephesus. And then, of course, you have his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, uh, all written from Ephesus. And then you have 1st and 2nd Peter that are addressed to the believers in the Roman province of Asia, which Ephesus is situated um, and, uh, and then, you know, you can think about uh, other letters that have some touch point with the city. So, for example, uh, 1 Corinthians was written from the city of Ephesus by Paul back to the church in Corinth. And when you read it with, an, with understanding where Paul is when he's writing it, you begin to see, not only is Paul addressing some of the issues in the church in Corinth, I mean, he's, of course, addressing those issues, but you see some of the things that he was wrestling with in the Ephesian context Mm. uh, woven into that story uh, that he is uh, writing to the church in Corinth. And then finally, and this one... uh, is is certainly the most debatable of the books, but I think that the the author of Hebrews has a connection to the city of Ephesus. Mm. And I come to that conclusion um, for a couple of reasons. One is at the in the final chapter of the book, the author writes about Timothy, who had been released from prison mm. and was returning to this group of believers. And scholars will debate on where exactly that group was located. Uh, But I tend to think that Timothy would have been returning to Ephesus. And so the letter to uh, the letter written uh, that we title Hebrews, I think was probably addressed to that group of believers. And then, of course, there's the, the fascination with the content of Hebrews. Whoever that author was, it had to have been. Uh, a Jew yeah. who yeah. was very well versed in uh, Judaism, and um, and the leading candidates, I think most would agree, are either uh, Apollos, who we know was eloquent in speech. Uh, mm. We learned that from his first trip to Ephesus, mm. uh, but it could have also been uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Mm. And wouldn't it be interesting if it were Priscilla just because of the anonymity of that letter? You know, mm. we don't know who it was. Yeah. And that, that raises an interesting uh, question about why we don't know who it is. Mm. And could it have been uh, a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and not wanting to, you know, give their name to the book uh, for whatever reason? Sure. But anyway. So, yeah, so with all of that, um, we have a huge part of the New Testament that's connected to that church in Ephesus. And for that reason, in terms of the first century, um, it is the most significant church in the New Testament, Hmm. more so than Jerusalem, more so than Antioch, I I think. Yeah. Another question, would you um, be in the camp that would um, attribute— Paul to writing Hebrews or Luke? I, I wouldn't. No, okay. yeah, it doesn't seem as if, I mean, it doesn't sound like Paul. Okay. Um, one of the things that I love about the Apostle Paul's writing is that, yeah, he certainly is Jewish. And, um, 
and yet he can write to uh, different contexts in language that those contexts would understand. Uh. And so it seems as if, you know, if Paul were, were to have written a letter similar to Hebrews, uh, it would have certainly been directed to Jews, mm. and his name would have been attached to it. Mm, uh, sure. I mean, he would have said, Paul, the apostle to the Jews, or, or something of that nature. That, that makes sense. Yeah. That does. Well, hopefully, maybe we'll find out in heaven and we can, <laughs> you know, take That's some— That's right. <laughs> yeah. I do think the uh, the, 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 the latter— um, uh, attri- uh, attri- uh, you're, you're attributing it to is interesting. Yeah, Priscilla yeah. and Aquila. Yeah, Aquila and Priscilla. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, you know, it would be interesting if it were a couple that wrote it together, or perhaps even more interesting, it would be if it were Priscilla that actually wrote uh, the letter. Um, Michael, so, is yeah, the, but that's. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, is the language the original language Greek? Is it a very high Greek? In his writing, and the letter to the he, Hebrews. Yes, Hebrews. Yes. Yeah, you know what? That's a, one of the texts in the New Testament that I have not translated. Okay. Um, so I, you know, I couldn't speak to that. <laughs> well, uh, no. Well, thank you for that. So, uh, Michael, um, in your book, uh, can you just please talk about uh, the life cycle of a movement um, and how a movement has impacted history? Uh, I thought it was really good how you just started talking about the life cycle of a movement. And I was like, oh, where is he going with this? And as I continue reading, I'm like, oh, like, why didn't I? Mm-hmm. It's like you just, it's like this light bulb goes out. Like, that makes sense. Like, duh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, in the 1960s, uh, sociologists, of course, were fascinated by movements because, you know, we have the, the women's liberation movement uh, that's at its nascent stage. Uh, we have, sexual revolution that's going on. Um, and so this, there was an interest in movements. And a sociologist by the name of uh, Bloomer uh, began to study, and what he came up with was what he would call uh, a life cycle of a movement. And um, as I recall that life cycle, it begins, of course, with a, with a cause uh, that people can get behind. And, uh, and people, you know, get excited about it and motivated by it. They're energized by that cause. And as the movement uh, grows, um, it begins to transform and people uh, see more needs or different needs uh, in the movement, perhaps for uh, training uh, people to be able to teach others about what the movement is about and so on. And so in that life cycle, you have, you know, not only the, the excitement about the cause, but uh, the motivation of many people uh, to that cause. And then eventually the, the, the necessity to train people mm. who are perhaps, a, you know, distant, a little distant from the origins of the cause. Mm-hmm. to train them to know what the cause is about and how to continue it. And then ultimately in that uh, life cycle, you come to um, a decline mm-hmm. of some sort. And the decline doesn't always mean that uh, it loses its significance. It just loses its momentum as a movement. Um, and what others building on Bloomer's work 
uh, have suggested is that part of that decline that tends to happen to movements is a result of um, the movement becoming mainstream in society. Mm. Uh, you, you think of uh, the National Organization of Women. I mean, that's pretty mainstream, but that comes out of this liberation movement. Um, and so it's been mainstream in our society today. Uh, different religious movements, for example, are more mainstream today. Uh, you think of the Jehovah's Witnesses. When early on, they very much acted as a movement. Uh, but they've become more mainstream, meaning that they're accepted as a part of our society today. Um, and so mainstreaming of a movement will tend to see a movement plateau. It might maintain the, its size, but it, it'll tend to plateau. Um, but there are other things that happen in movements, too. Um, and we look at different parts of the world where uh, the people begin in a movement uh, become persecuted by governments or by outside forces who aren't uh, excited about the movement or don't agree with the movement. And mm -hmm. so persecution can have an adverse effect. In some cases, uh, the leadership of a movement uh, can at times be co-opted by other groups uh, and, and in the absence of uh, that movement's leadership, then it could plateau or or decline and then sometimes you know movements just simply disappear uh, over time they lose so much momentum they're not able to recruit people to be a part of the movement mm. and so they eventually just disappear off of the scene and you think about um um oh, oh boy it just escaped my mind um uh, the, the movement's uh, oh my goodness, how could I forget what this is? Um, <laughs> those economic movements that we saw uh, earlier or late last year yeah. uh, in the year before where people were gathering together and sitting in on Wall Street or what was it? I can't remember what those yeah, were called now. Yeah, um, uh, Occupied Wall Street yeah. or something? Yeah, there you, there you go. Occupy Chicago, Occupy Wall <laughs> yeah. Street. And, and, and perhaps, I mean, just the fact that we can't remember yeah. And what that movement was gives us an indication of its decline and insignificance. Yeah, actually, I was even though at a, at a particular time it was significant. He, yeah, actually, uh, uh, earlier when we were talking offline, Michael, I was saying that I, you know, I'm from Chicago. I was working at my bank, and those guys were like showing up at our uh, branches at our financial center, just causing trouble because you know they looked at us as the big, you know, bad wolf of just uh, mm -hmm. uh, financing with the bank. So they, those guys were like outside knocking and causing just trouble. I mean, some, a lot of, a lot of them were peaceful, but uh, when they were just walking by the bank, they would just get really angry and just, you know, like I think they broke windows and stuff at other yeah. locations. So, um, can, so can we just talk a lot, a little bit about just the movement now in Ephesus? Uh, again, I don't want to yeah, give yeah. too much in your book cause we do want people to go out and get it. So, <laughs> but, uh, can you just talk about just the, uh, Ephesian movement a little bit and how that, uh, just correlates yeah, where we're at sure. now? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, you know, looking at this idea of a life cycle of a movement, uh, and then trying to understand, you know, does the Ephesian movement fit into that life cycle? Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and 
in some ways it does. I mean, if we think long term in, in regards to church history, we do know that in the in uh, the 1400s, Christianity is suppressed in Asia Minor, or what then became known as Turkey, um, and we see it eventually wiped out uh, in Turkey altogether. But leading up to then, and and you know, especially in the first 300 years. There was definitely a movement there. Mm. And what I began to see in the study of that movement was that uh, it was making an impact on society that many contemporary uh, church-planted movements do not make. And, uh, and so I think there's a distinction here. You know, um, it's interesting as people have been reviewing the book— uh, some will say, well, you know, Cooper is an advocate of church planting movement. And others will say, well, no, he's not, because he doesn't even talk about them mm. in the book. And uh, and so it's been very interesting how people have interacted with this. But but the one thing that, I, that I'm hoping people will see uh, from the book is that a genuine movement of God makes an impact on society yeah. on every level. Yeah. Uh, it makes a religious impact. It makes an intellectual impact. It has an economic impact, and it has a political impact. Mm. And the study of this movement in Ephesus had made that that clear in my mind that a genuine movement of God will be so transformational that it will infiltrate every part of a culture. And uh, and that's what happens. That's what happened in. Uh, Ephesus. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing what a a church who is focused on missions, uh, the impact that they can just have on their community, uh, on their city, on their region, their state, their country. I mean, it can definitely spread like wildfire. Um, Michael, uh, recently, and 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 I just want to kind of just switch everything uh, over to what's just happening uh, right now in the world. With this whole COVID nineteen, uh, recently you were on episode forty eight on the uh, physiology podcast, and you talked about how the early church stayed on mission during a time of plague. Uh, can you just please expound on that a little bit further? Just uh, I, I really I was listening to the podcast, and I was like, you know, I think it would be a, a really good question just to talk about, especially uh, with everything just going on in the world right now. Yeah, you know, this is something that is of particular interest for us, as you point out, because we are in a period of time of crisis. And mm. and when we are in these periods, uh, you know, like plagues and, and whatever, famine and, and so on, we tend to look back at church history and ask the question, well, what did the early church do? Yeah. And uh, so often when we, uh, when we do that, we say, well, you know, God used those plagues and uh, times of crisis in significant ways to grow the church. And absolutely, 100% he did that. But what's interesting about the early plagues in Christianity, uh, and there were two significant ones, one in the 160s and one in the 260s, respectively known as the Antonine Plague and the Cyprian Plague, uh, those two plagues, had an incredible impact on the Roman Empire on multiple levels. I mean, the death toll in the Antonine Plague was somewhere around 25 million uh, Roman citizens. 
including Christians. Uh, in the, during the Cyprian plague at its height, 5,000 people were dying every day. Wow. Bodies were just being thrown out into the streets wow. uh, during that plague. And, um, and But what's important for us to understand today is that the church in those first 300 years never stopped growing. It was on the trajectory of growth. And if you understand exponential growth, and, and we should by now, because we've seen with a number of graphs of, of COVID-19 how you know the virus started with a few and then it just grew exponentially. Mm-hmm. And it makes this J-shaped curve uh, that's indicative of a, of a uh, exponential growth. And what we see in the early church is that uh, the, the church started, we know, uh, small, but it grew and it continued to grow exponentially into this J-shaped curve all the way until uh, the Christianization of the Roman Empire, when all of a sudden, you know, everybody becomes Christian and the curve flattens. Mm. Uh, but up until that time, it, it was continually growing. So um, the, the church, during these times of plagues, it was growing as it went into the plague, it did flatten a little bit because Christians were dying, but then it continued to grow again and uh, in this J shape. And then it flattened just a little bit uh, with the second plague, but then it grew uh, significantly after that. And I think what's important here for us to remember, particularly in the West, is that that early church was positioned to grow mm. and it grew through the plague. What is deeply troubling to me in the context of North America is that the North American church is not positioned to grow. In -hmm. fact, since the 1980s, we have been in decline uh, from, um, I think it was 1990 when 85% of U.S. adults identified as Christian. Uh, Today, it's down to 65%. Uh, The the same with evangelicalism. It's, It's gone from... Uh, 28% earlier uh, this this uh, decade down to 25%. Mm. And we're still on this downward trend. And so I'm, I'm concerned that the church is, is uh, b- believing that this crisis that we're in will draw people to the church, even though the church has been declining. And, uh, and and there being this hope that God will use this crisis to make the church grow again. Um, and I don't know if that's going to happen necessarily, because as I look at the crisis in the first few centuries of the early church, again, that early church was on the trajectory of growth. Today, in our crisis, our church is on a trajectory of decline. And um, I think what's important for us to consider in the North American context is what can we do now, today, during this time of crisis, to equip the saints for works of ministry so that when we come out on the other side, we are positioned to grow? Uh, because I don't, I'm, I'm not so certain that we're there uh, right now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I always find it so interesting that the church finds its its growth not in prosperity, but in just very, very, very hard, hard, hard times. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, if, if you know the uh, writings of Tertullian, he said the, the, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. And um, mm-hmm. 
And so, yeah, e- even in this time of crisis, I mean, I could kind of just get, you know, the uh, feelers for people who are thinking more deeply about faith in God. Um, you know, not saying they're coming to saving faith, but it's just interesting when God allows something like this to happen. He knocks down a lot of false gods, false security. Um, you know, you think your job's going to have some sense of security, you know, your insurance, and then all of a sudden a plague comes and hits, yeah. and you're like, all that goes out the window, and you kind of start realizing, wow, my what I thought was once security is not. Yeah. God has taken that away, and, and, and I mean, the reality of every single day, death starts creeping closer and closer and closer to you, and, you know, you're seeing thousands die, and so you, you, you begin to look... Uh, uh, past the sun, <laughs> yeah. You start 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 looking at the metaphysical, not the physical, and so I, I think I think definitely in this time, there's a lot of there's a lot of internal reflection. Yeah, and we have had a uh, uh, Glenn Stant- Stanton from uh, Focus on the Family. He said the same thing that in times of just hardship, uh, we do see a growth that happens uh, in a church, and he has uh, tracked this statistically. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're always hoping, uh, uh, Michael, that, you know, out of all this that's happening in the world, uh, first, that God gets glorified in, in, in everything that's happening and that the church grows and people come to know the true God of the universe, you know, and what Christ has done for us on the cross. I mean, I, I'm excited mm-hmm. to see what, what's going to come out of this, you know, even though uh, and we're, we're not trying to be insensitive of people's lives being changed because of loss of family members, friends mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. Uh, please. Uh, uh, but uh, again, you know, we, we, we also know that uh, lives are being changed for the better. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm familiar with uh, some of Greg's work um, and, uh, and I would agree a hundred percent that the church is not dying. Mm-hmm. The church is Christ's. And in Matthew 16, he promises that he will build the church. Mm. He is not relinquishing that promise. He will build the church. At the same time, you know, I'm reminded of Romans chapter two, uh, this, this judgment that the Christian is going to face just as the non-Christian is going to face. And so I don't want, I mean, my concern is that we look at this crisis as a judgment on our society mm-hmm. when it could very well be a judgment on our church. Yeah. 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 This is a time for us to think yes. and to ask the question, are we staying on mission? Yeah. And if, again, if we have, and statistically I understand where Greg is getting his data, uh, we might disagree yeah, uh, on that. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's Glenn, because, Glenn. Uh, Glenn uh, Glenn, Stan- yeah, Glenn, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yeah, wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Glenn Stanton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, and, yeah, and I think that I, I think that there's you know both camps on there. Two things are, could be true. Yeah, <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> well, you know, here's the interesting thing is that if we talk about sheer numbers, there are today more evangelicals than there ever have been in the United States in its entire history. Mm-hmm. That is true. Mm. But at the same time, the population is growing at such an extent that evangelicalism isn't able to keep up with it. So we're losing a market share, if you will, uh, in our society. And so even though the the real numbers of evangelicals continues to grow, um, the percentage of population gap between evangelicals and and non-evangelicals also is growing at a higher rate than the growth of evangelicalism. Mm. And so we're not, I mean, evangelicalism is 
is not at all a movement in the United States. There, there is no J-shaped curve in terms of evangelicalism here. And if we're going to recover, uh, if we put this in economic terms, if we're going to recover a market share in the United States, we have got to become a movement. Yeah, and and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do this study on the church in Ephesus is to help us understand what that New Testament movement looked like, and principles that we might apply in our churches today that would help get us into that same position. Yeah, and I appreciate in your book you do uh, provide uh, numbers for us as far as the percentage change of religions from. 2007 till now, uh, we've seen just a, 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 neg- a negative change. Uh, and you can check out the book um, and to get those numbers. And I also, uh, I believe I saw too that um, there was an, uh, an increase in the Muslim religion. That's gone up slightly, uh, where as uh, evangelicals, we've seen a decline. Mm-hmm. So I found that really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, researchers like uh, Pew and others are are predicting that by 2050, uh, even Christianity and Islam will probably be about the same size or very similar. Wow. And then going from 2050 onward, uh, the projection is that Islam will be uh, larger uh, than than Christianity. Wow! Very interesting. Very interesting. And that, that's if we continue on the trajectory that we're on today. If we continue doing the things that we're doing today, then, you know, our future uh, might surprise us. But if we get back to some New Testament principles of movement, mm-hmm. then that can shift and we can see Christianity uh, grow again around the world. Right, right. Amen, amen. Well, this is uh, Ephesiology by uh, Dr. Michael T. Cooper, and uh, look, we, we love talking about, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, er- soteriology, eschatology, and now we got uh, Ephesiology, Ephesiology right? to we, add to yeah, the list. Yeah, so <laughs> we love talking about those topics, but at the end of the day, uh, here at Bridge, we are completely aware that in order to draw those to saving faith, it comes through the sharing of the gospel, and so we always allow our guests to uh, present the gospel to those who are listening, and so uh, the floor is yours. So what what is the gospel, uh, Dr. Cooper? Yeah, the, you know, the gospel is compelling. It's the story about what God has done in his relentless pursuit to have a relationship with us. That We bear his image, and uh, he has a desire to be in relationship with his image bearers. Yet we failed. Uh, we wanted to take his glory and have our own glory. And yet, even in spite of that, he continues to desire. And history has shown us uh, from Genesis to Revelation that he has been on this pursuit of a relationship with us. And ultimately, he sends his son to, to uh, demonstrate in a very meaningful and impactful way what his love looked like. And that love looked like uh, him laying down his life for us, that we could have a relationship with him. You know, it's a simple verse, but it's so profound. And it comes from the Gospel of John that was written in the city of Ephesus, Mm. that God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him, uh, in his only son, should not perish, but would have everlasting life. It was true back when John wrote that to the people of Ephesus, and it's true for us today. 
that if we would believe in Jesus and what he's done for us, if we would, if we would uh, renounce our desire for our own glory and give glory to God for what he has done for us, uh, then he has promised us a hope uh, to be with him in all of eternity. Wow. Amen. Amen. I love that part. <laughs> yeah. love, I love that's the favorite part of the program. I love it. Well, um, <laughs> Michael, uh, thank you very much for coming on. Um, where can our listeners find you and find your book, A Physiology, A Study of the Ephesian Movement? Yeah, the book is available on Amazon, uh, of course, and available from the publisher, William Carey Publishing. And you can go to their website, missionbooks.org. Um, Amazon, just do a search for Ephesiology. And then I can be found on our website, ephesiology.com. Uh, we have all kinds of extra materials that we couldn't put in the book, uh, but we've made available to our readers especially, but for everyone who are, is interested in the study of the uh, first century Christian movement. And we do a regular podcast, a weekly podcast, and uh, that's been a lot of fun to do with a, a couple of uh, uh, my colleagues. And then, uh, of course, we have a Facebook page. Just search Ephesiology, and uh, you can find me there as well. Yeah, awesome. And, too, if you get the book, there's a QR code that'll take you to the website on each chapter, so you can't miss that. Uh, that's pretty cool that yeah. each chapter of your book, there's a QR code and people can scan it with their phone and they'll take you, uh, to, uh, the website. That was uh, really cool yeah. to see. Yeah. I, I was like, man, that's, yeah. that's so 2020. That's so modern. <laughs> yeah. You're ahead yeah. of the game. You're ahead of the game. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the unique features about that code is it takes you to a, a content that is specific for each chapter. Oh. And so it includes a uh, podcast that we've done uh, that pertain to that topic. Uh, that w one of my colleagues, Andrew uh, Johnson, put together a study guide, and that study guide's available on uh, through that QR code. And then there are all kinds of other resources that huh. are available too. So we, we, you know what, we want to serve the church. Uh, we want to do our part in helping to equip the saints. Wow, that is awesome! You, you know, as someone who is starting his own, uh, you know, agency, I'm going to have to uh, uh, nab that idea. Yeah, that is that is a very good idea. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's great. Make sure you give him credit for it, and for all I you, will for all you future authors, if you guys take that idea, make sure that you give Doctor Michael Cooper and his team uh, a shout out for that. So for sure, for sure. <laughs> uh, well, Michael, thank you for coming on to Bridge Radio. We are just thoroughly blessed that you came on and that was just awesome for our listeners. You know, we only have 45 minutes that went by super fast, but mm -hmm. please go out and get the book. You will enjoy it. Yeah. So yes. Thank you again thank for coming on. Appreciate that. Yeah. You're welcome guys. Thanks. Thanks for your work too. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Bridge Radio. Uh, again, that was Dr. Michael T. Cooper on his book, Ephesiology, A Study of the Ephesian Movement. Julio, what did you think? <laughs> I think it was I think it was great. I, I um I, I just love being back here. Yeah. And uh it's just been good. So good. It's just been it's just been great being back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was it was it was such a it was such a good uh uh book topic. Um I think the QR codes is a brilliant 
marketing idea. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it, it looks like a fantastic book. I mean, I, I haven't gotten to read it all, but um, uh, yeah, I just highly recommend you guys to go check it out. Good guy, too. Good yeah, guy too. It was, he, yeah, he was just a good interview. Uh, again, we want to give our shout out to our international audience. Yeah. Um, our, our friends from Canada are just tearing it up in our beta. Alberta and sorry and Newfoundland yeah we've just been picking up and the UK uh, they've been just uh, man coming on strong I got people from uh, Pembrokeshire and Bath and North East Somerset and Central uh, Bedfordshire and City of Bristol and Barking and man thank you guys out there for listening and always our New Zealand New Zealand and Australian crowd always just uh, being faithful and yeah and like always uh for our united states listeners uh you know california has also been tearing it up they are yeah we'll give a shout out to one of our our favorite listeners daisy yes (laughs) daisy if you're listening (laughs) so uh you know she's one of no one knows why abe's laughing yeah well you know she was one of our original uh listeners from california so shout out to you uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, follow us on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, again, we can't do this without you. And if you guys, uh, ha- uh, if God moves you to give, please give to the ministry. Again, uh, you can find us at bridgemanlaredo.org. And Julio, it was really, really fun. fun to have you back on. You know, you can always take your job back anytime, you know, when you <laughs> want to come back, you know. Like, I, I couldn't leave the podcast just on the wayside, but, you know, this was your baby. But, uh, you know, anytime hey, you want to... you doing a good job, man. <laughs> you want to take it over. So, yes, this is our hey. reunion episode. Yeah. We got to have a, we gotta have an episode where I talk about Houston and we just you and I kicking yeah. it again. I think that'd be so fun. We need to do it like a Chasing chasing After Win podcast or yeah. where we just talk about, um, I don't know, just life. Just yeah. kick it like we used to. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. No, you, you, can, you can see the chemistry there. It's, just, it's, it's always there. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Gentlemen, uh, uh, <laughs> that concludes our episode. And like always, uh, Julio, would you like to end the podcast with the uh, Heidelberger cat- Catechism? Heidelberger. <laughs> I want a burger. <laughs> want I a know burger. that for sure. I want it. Yeah. Anyway, so we always end the episode with uh, one question, and that is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And that is that... I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will see you on the next one. Later. Feel so good.